This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Welcome to the One Verse Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Myers. This is episode number 27. And in this episode, we are looking at Genesis 2 7, 27 and 2 7. I thought that was kind of interesting. I did not plan that. Last week, I promised you that Genesis 2 through 4 contained some revolutionary ideas about basically everything life, humanity, society, religion, war, politics, violence. I mean, I don't care what topic that you have in mind, it sometimes seems to me that Genesis chapters 2, 3, and 4 touch on it, form the foundation for it, give us insight into it. Now, I told you that, and then last week, I hope you weren't too disappointed. We looked at sort of opening verses of the second creation account in Genesis chapter 2 and didn't really see anything too revolutionary. Some of you emailed me and said you really appreciated the episode. Thank you for doing that. (laughs) But, um... I don't know, it just uh, wasn't much there, for me anyway, but that's going to change. Today we're going to look at Genesis 2-7, and we will learn something rather shocking about the creation of man. And you don't want to miss that, so stay tuned. Now, uh, before we get to that, I do want to introduce to you the sponsor, and that is a new book I've got coming out. It's called The Atonement of God. I just want to sort of put a plug in for it, I guess. I am so excited about this book. You have no idea. I've been writing this book for, well, a version of it for a couple years now, and and this isn't the whole thing, but I'm going to be putting some of it out. And it's just something that I have learned over the last couple years about the atonement of God that has just revolutionized and changed the way I view God, I view scripture, I view humanity, uh, politics even. We got this crazy presidential election going on, and that the things I write about in this book touch on even the presidential election. So anyway, the book is called The Atonement of God. It's not out yet, but uh, I hope to have it out in time for Easter. So sometime second, third week of March, hopefully. Now, if you want to get updates about this book and when it's coming out, uh, you can go to my blog at redeeminggod.com and just subscribe to my email newsletter. It will be at redeeminggod.com slash subscribe. And uh, you can learn about it there. I I sent out an email today to my subscribers. If you got that already, then you saw the cover. And uh, that's how you do it. Again, the book is The Atonement of God, coming out sometime late in March. Now, I also want to read one review that came in recently. And that is from Chuck E. the Third. He writes this, In my life, I've only had two teachers like Jeremy. One took a year and a half to complete Matthew. Great insight, great teacher. Looking forward to completing the study. (laughs) Thanks, Chuck. Again, as I sort of indicated last week, at my current rate, I might be quite a while in Genesis. Way more than a year and a half. It's been six months already, and we're only into chapter two of Genesis. But again, we'll be picking up more quickly in the future. In fact, next week, I hope to cover Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 17. So today, though, only one verse, which is Genesis 2, 7. And uh, the verse says this, And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. 
Now, if you recall from last week's episode, the scene was set in Genesis 2, 4 through 6 with this barren landscape. Let me just make sure I got the uh, references right. Yes, Genesis 2, 4 through 6, with this barren landscape without any plants. And uh, there was this relational God which was introduced to us without anyone to relate to. Now, obviously, you and I know that there was the Trinity, okay? But that's not introduced yet in, in the Bible. So uh, God, these, this relational God, but he doesn't have anyone to relate to in Genesis. And uh, the reason that the land was barren and the reason that this relational God has no one to relate to is because there was no man on the earth. That's uh, what we read in those verses. But all that gets corrected. Both of those problems gets corrected in Genesis 2 verse 7. And I read you the verse. And right at the beginning, it says, God formed man from the dust of the ground. The dust, the dirt. We saw that again in, in previous verses. The Hebrew word for ground, where it says the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, the Hebrew word for ground there is Adama. Obviously, that's a play on word, a play on the name for uh, the man, Adam, that he gets named later by God. Adama is ground, Adam he, he gets named, and that's a, a play on words there, of course. Um, and again, most Bible translations, I found this sort of humorous, most Bible translations have ground there or dust or, or dirt or something the literal Hebrew could be translated, and probably most properly is translated as clawed. <laughs> uh, it's not clay exactly, but it's it's dirt mixed with mud or with water to, to make a, a dirt clod. Um, you say, what is that? That's not going to really help you understand the text. I just thought it was funny. If any of you women out there want to call your wives a clod, you now have biblical justification to do so. <laughs> uh, be careful with that, though. Anyway, um, it does sort of make sense that God forms man from a dirt clod because that's all he has. Remember, there's dirt, this barren, dry landscape, and then there's this water, this mist that comes up and waters the earth, but there weren't any plants. And so we have this mist that comes up that sort of waters the, the, the land, uh, but there's only dirt, and so it makes mud. So a, a clod. So God takes a clod of dirt and forms a man from it. Now, None of that, again, is too super significant here. The real point, uh, very similar to what we saw over and over in Genesis chapter 1, is that Moses is drawing on numerous themes uh, here in verse two, in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 7, from the religious writings of the surrounding cultures of his day. And I'm not going to get into them as much as I did in chapter 1, because I don't think they apply as much. But today we will see some of those, and one of them is right here with uh, man being formed from the dust of the ground, because in other religions and cultures of that time, such as the Sumerian, Akkadian, Babylonian, Egyptian, others, um, many of these other counts do have man, the gods forming man, from the ground. Uh, and occasionally, rather than a dirt clod, you know, dirt mixed with water, what they actually have is dirt mixed with the blood of a slain god. That's usually sort of what we find there. There's this war, remember. A lot of times in these other creation accounts, there's some sort of war. And eventually, somewhere along the way, a god or a bunch of different gods die. And so in those creation accounts, what happens is when this god dies, his blood spills out onto the ground and, and out pops a man. A man is formed from the blood of a god mixed with dirt of the ground. 
So uh, here, though, in Genesis 2.7, note that there is no blood. Again, I pointed it out before, even though Moses is drawing these parallels to these other creation accounts, he's being very careful to make sure that he edits out all the violence. And why is that? We'll see a lot more of this as we go through Scripture, but one of it is because God doesn't need blood. Uh, and, and that he doesn't need blood, he doesn't need violence, he doesn't accomplish his will with the ne- blood or violence. Uh, that truth, that pound that idea into your head because it becomes insanely significant later on. Everything God does, he does without death, without violence, and without bloodshed. That's sort of the theme of my book, The Atonement of God. So again, if you want to read more about that, I highly recommend you get that book when it comes out here before Easter. Uh, it also becomes insanely significant later on in Genesis three and four. So uh, just remember, I pointed it out here. Again, I know that you know all the violence and bloodshed and death that occurs, you know, at at the command of God in the Old Testament. Again, hopefully I can get to explain all that in the future. Just remember here though, in, in the beginning, in the creation account, before there is sin, before there is sin in the world, everything God does is without death, without violence, without bloodshed becomes very important to understand the rest of Scripture. Anyway, uh, although there's no mention of violence here, it is important to note also that uh, the humans are formed from the dust of the ground, and uh, that is a clear reference to the mortality of humans. Uh, later we read that, you know, to dust they, they came into dust they will return. That's, that's where we get this sort of thing we say at funerals, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. At least it used to be said in funerals, not so much anymore. But the point is, is that back then, dust and dirt and ground, because that's where humans returned to after they died, they, they decayed and, and went back to dust. Uh, dust and ground was a symbol of mortality. And so when God forms Adam, the man, from the dust of the ground, it's sort of a symbol, an indication that um, they were created mortal. Uh, To be formed from the dust of the ground means that the natural progression of human life for them was to grow old and die. So even before the sin entered the world, I think again, once again, we have sort of an indication here that, that Adam and later Eve were formed, were created mortal. And that's why God gave them the tree of life. Again, as we will see, they were invited to eat from the tree of life. And that is sort of the antidote, I suppose, to mortality. Then once they were cast out of the garden, they could no longer eat of the tree of life, which means their life would take its natural progression. uh, And they, they would not be able to eat from the tree of life. And so they would die. Now, again, this might be a challenging idea because I know that some people think that sin introduced physical death to the world. But again, we talked about all of that way back in a previous episode where we we said that uh, death and decay were built into the creation as a normal part of life. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I dealt with Romans a little bit in that episode as well. Uh, I don't need to recover cover all that again. You can go back and listen to that episode. There's a link to it in the show notes. I, I can't remember exactly which one it is now off the top of my head, but you'll have to go to the show notes for this episode, redeeminggod.com slash Genesis 2-7, and there'll be a link there. You can go listen to that episode, or at least at least uh, be notified which one it is, so you can pull it up on your, your iPod or whatever to listen to it. Now, uh, at the end of Genesis 2-7, 
we read that God breathed life into Adam, and Adam became a living being. Uh, this this phrase here, Adam, uh, living being, uh, is uh, the word nefesh. It might be better translated as soul or life. And you might recall as well, we, we talked about this some back in Genesis when we talked about the creation of the fish. Remember the fish and nefesh? I do remember the name of that episode, the, the fish and nefesh. And we saw that the fish also became living beings. Uh, we saw there that the word fish, it doesn't mean the immaterial part, because then that would mean that fish have souls. Remember that whole conversation? You know, all dogs go to, do, do dogs go to heaven? Do fish go to heaven? Because they have a nefesh and a soul. And what we saw there that the nefesh or the soul it simply refers to the life force or the animating principle of a creature. Again, I don't want to. I don't, don't want to cover. I don't need to cover the whole thing. Go back and listen to the, that episode. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes for that one as well. You can go back and listen to it for a little bit of a refresher. Uh, here in here in Genesis two seven though, we do have something unique. All right, even though the man became a living soul. We have, the the way he did this is different than the way God created the animals or even the fish in Genesis chapter 1. Here, the text says that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Uh, Again, this is something that was common commonly found in other religious texts uh, from other cultures of the other religions in the days of Moses. Um, Egypt, for example. Uh, Pharaoh was considered to be a god. Uh, You probably know that. The the Egyptians worshipped Pharaoh as a god. And there are numerous, numerous, lots and lots of uh, religious texts, not biblical texts, religious texts from Egypt which say that Pharaoh gives or breathes life into the nostrils of his people. So Pharaoh, the god, is the one who gives breath, or gives life to the nostrils of his people. Very similar idea here. And again, since the Egyptians were, or since the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, I think that this is a clear reference to one of the beliefs and practices of, of, of Egypt. All right, so uh, that's Genesis 2-7. But, but, are you ready? Here's something, here is what is super significant about this verse and what I really want to focus on for the rest of our time in, in this episode. And I, I need to give credit where credit is due. The idea I want to share with you, I learned from Greg Boyd, pastor out at Woodland Hills Church in, in Minneapolis, and in his sermon called Image That. In fact, I think if, if you subscribe to my other podcast at theology.fm, you can also find that on iTunes. I think that that sermon, Image That, by Greg Boyd, was one of the sermons I I included in, in that podcast a couple months back. Um, anyway, so after I heard that sermon, though, I emailed, emailed uh, Pastor Greg out there in Minneapolis, and I asked him, I said, wow, this is a great sermon. Can I get a list of resources? Because, you know, I, I want to do some reading and research on my own. So he graciously sent me some of the resources and books and articles that he used, and that's one of the things I was uh, researching the last couple of weeks, reading the last couple of weeks in preparation for last week's episode and this week's episode, and even some of the future episodes that I'm I'm going to share with you. And what I learned, in fact, what Greg talks about in that sermon, uh, is that what we read here in Genesis 2-7 is very similar to a Mesopotamian ritual where a, a statue 
was carved or, or created out of clay or something, and then it was decorated, cleansed, uh, and then installed within a Mesopotamian temple. Uh, in my reading, for example, I learned that after the temple was built, here's what they would do. The best, the priests would go find the best craftsmen in the city and would hire them secretly to carve or, or build or construct a statue, which would then you know, to be placed in the temple. Uh, it was done in secret because after the statue was finished, you ready for this? Part of the installation ceremony required that, their ha- that the craftsmen have their hands cut off. Uh, and they would swear before all the watching people that they did not, in fact, construct the statue. Instead, it, it had just appeared out of heaven. You know, it wasn't there. It wasn't there one day, and the next day it was. Uh, the idea was then that the God Himself, whose whose temple this was, that the God had constructed the statue and placed it in His temple. Okay, so. I think the craftsmen probably knew this was going to happen, but it was such a great honor for them at that time to construct this statue. Uh, And I imagine they were paid quite well for it uh, by the priests or something that uh, they figured it was worth it to. It was a great honor to be chosen to to construct this statue. And then, then of course, as I said, they would swear before all the watching people that they had nothing to do with it, that they didn't build it. Uh, but that wasn't the end of it. The installation service. So then they would take this statue, and even though you know it had to be prepared to enter into the temple, and uh, they had a ceremony that would last. Are you ready for this? Seven days. Isn't that interesting? This seven-day ceremony to prepare the statue to take its place in the temple, and there was eleven stages of of the ceremony over the seven days. Uh, one of these stages involved taking the statue down to the river and washing it with water to cleanse it. The, the priest would, would declare that the statue had come down from the god and was the image of God on earth. This statue was declared before all the watching people to be the image of God on earth. Uh, while they're at the river, they would perform several washing rituals on the statue. There was the mishpi ritual, which was the mouth washing. They would wash out the mouth. And then they would perform the pitpi ritual, which was the mouth opening ritual. It involved breathing into the mouth of the statue. Very interesting, right? And the reason was uh, so that the statue could now talk and uh, declare, in a sense, to the priests who had you know, special hearing abilities, the revelation, the messages from God. Before this, it couldn't because its mouth was unclean. So, so these rituals then, uh, they thought they were necessary for the statue to become a living being uh, and uh, for, the, for the God to, to, to enter into the statue. So that the statue could not only become a living being, but also, most importantly, a living representative of the God himself. Uh, Here's what one of the sources I read, uh, here's here's what he wrote. He wrote, Once the mouthwash, washing, and opening were complete, the statue was considered a fully functioning, living manifestation of the divine. Now, does any of that sound familiar? 
It's, it should, because that's exactly very similar to what we read here in Genesis 2-7, when God forms man from the dust of the ground and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And we recall, remember, what we saw in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God made man in his own image. Uh, the images of God in these other religions, they, they were these idols or these statues, and people prayed to them, but they, they didn't think they were just, just wood or stone or, or something like that. They thought that they actually embodied God, the, the God himself that they were worshiping. They were the actual presence of the God that the statue represented. Um, the, the statue was the physical representation of the deity, and it was indwelled by the deity. Uh, and that sort of helps explain why in Genesis, and the rest of the Scripture, like in Exodus as well, God doesn't want humans to make any images of God. Why? Because God's already made an image of himself. He's, he doesn't need any images of himself. He's already got one. It's you and me. We talked about that before. Mankind is the image of God, which means that mankind is the living, breathing representative of God himself. Here in Genesis 2-7, what we have is God, sort of, or Moses at least, writing the way that God created humans to be very similar to the way the pagan, the, the surrounding religions of that time, made their statues and then performed the rituals on these statues so that these statues could become the living, breathing image of God, representative of God, dwelling place of God on earth. Now, I want you to keep that in mind because it becomes, again, increasingly significant as Genesis 2 and 3 unfold. The the events of Genesis 2 and 3 are full of theological truth and meaning for the Hebrew people who knew about how the gods of these other religions were installed into the temples and what this meant for the people of those religions. So, again, you need to keep this concept in mind. The parallels here between Genesis 2-7 and how these statues of these other religions were installed in their temples and what that meant for the people then. Uh, Just to summarize, the Mesopotamian people believed that when the statue was indwelled in this way, it was as if the deity had been born on earth. He had come from heaven to earth. In fact, sometimes in some some of these books I was reading, they literally spoke of such events as the birth of the God. They went through these 11 rituals, and they believed that the God was born on earth in this statue, and it came to life. Uh, the statue was sort of viewed as the nexus or the meeting place between heaven and earth. Uh, the, the God, who normally was in heaven, actually indwelled and inhabited the statue. Now, uh, what that meant was that whatever happened to the statue also happened to the deity. If the deity is living in the statue and foreign enemies, say for example, come and attack the city and then they plunder the temple and they destroy or maim or capture the god, then that means that the god itself was maimed, destroyed, killed even, or captured by these enemies. Whatever happens to the statue happens to the God. Again, that becomes increasingly significant for a proper understanding of Genesis 3 uh, after Adam and Eve sin. The enemy enters into the garden and does something to the statue of God 
in the garden. Anyway, I don't want to give it all away. We'll, we'll, we'll get more. We'll, we'll discuss this more when we get there. Uh, for now, um, it's important to recall that, that when God tells the man and woman to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, we saw that in Genesis 1.28, the Hebrew people would have understood God to be saying that his images, it's you and me, his living, breathing statues were to spread upon the face of the earth. And in this way, the very presence of God would be also be spread upon the face of the earth. Does that make sense? If the statues, you and me, are the presence of God on earth, then as the statues spread over the earth and fill the earth, then the presence of God also spreads over the face of the earth. This, I really think this is sort of what Jesus had in mind when uh, he talked about how the kingdom of God has arrived. Uh, Paul later talks about how the church is the body of Christ. I think that both had this imagery from Genesis 2 in mind when they talked about spreading the kingdom of God on earth or allowing the body of Christ to cover the earth. Uh, we are the representatives of God on earth. And it means more than just that we represent God. It means that God's presence and power and holiness spreads throughout the earth in and through you and me. There's so much more about this I could say, uh, and even in my notes here, I'm skipping an awful lot. So uh, let me just try to close out this episode by sharing with you five ideas that are introduced in Genesis 2-7, which become critically important later on in Scripture and, and even in these chapters, but especially later on in Scripture. Number one. If you've seen God's statue, you have seen God. So, so again, with this idea that it was believed that the God dwelled in his statue, it was also believed that if you saw the statue of the God, then you saw God. And what this means in Genesis is that Adam was supposed to be the representative of God on earth. And, and we, that's what we saw in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. But we're also going to see that Adam loses this privileged position as a representative of God uh, in Genesis chapter 3. So, uh, now, now that doesn't mean that you and I are gods. I want to make that very clear. We may represent God, if you know, if you... If, if, um, but, but in fact, someone does come, though, that does represent God and is God himself. In fact, he even said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus not only revealed God to us, but he also reveals us to us. He shows us what God is really like, and he also showed us what humans are really supposed to be like. So, uh, you know, again, if you've seen God's statue, you've seen God, and that's what Jesus says. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what Jesus said. And, and Paul uh, points out a similar idea in some of his letters as well. So that's number one. If you've seen God's statue, you've seen God. Second, though, since everyone is, is a statue of Yahweh, every, every human is a statue of Yahweh, whatever you do to someone else, you do to God. Again, this, this is going to become critically important in Genesis 4 when Cain murders Abel. We'll talk about that a lot when we get there. But again, to point to Jesus, he says that whatever you do to one of the least of his brethren, you do to him. Very similar to the Mesopotamian idea. Whatever you did to that statue, it was as if you did it to God. And Jesus is saying, whatever you do to the least of these my brethren, even if you give them a cup of cold water in my name, it's as if you did it to Jesus. You gave a cup of cold water to Jesus when he was thirsty. Very similar idea. 
And so whatever you do to someone else, it's as if you are doing it to God. And it's not just giving a cup of cold water, though. It's also the bad things. Uh, if we're violent or we hurt or if we gossip or we slander somebody else, it's as if we are doing those things to God as well. So uh, that sort of is going to change how we treat and view and talk about other people as well. At least I hope it would. So that's the second. Third, uh, Jesus, remember, breathed on his followers and gave them the Holy Spirit. That's John twenty twenty two. Again, I think when Jesus did that in John twenty twenty two. He had Genesis 2-7 in mind when God breathed on this dirt clod and Adam, the man, became a living being. Uh, The actions of Jesus in John 20 are clearly symbolic of the actions of God in Genesis 2-7. The the dirt clod in Genesis 2 becomes a living being, and in John 20, when Jesus breathes on his apostles, and then later in Acts chapter 2, when, when all Christians receive the Holy Spirit, all right, this is a sign, this is a symbol that new life has begun, that a new type of creation is occurring in the body of Christ, in the church of Jesus. Again, lots of significance there to talk about Paul's letters and so on, but I'll leave that up to your future study. Fourth, uh, if we want to know God, one primary way to do this is through relationships with other people. Uh, If everybody represents God, then if we want to know God, we can do that by getting to know his representatives, which is other people. I think sometimes we Christians get this sort of backwards. We feel like if we want to know God, then we have to sort of get ourselves in a room somewhere and get our Bibles on our lap and 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 pray and sing some songs and lift our hands up to the, you know, the roof, the ceiling, the sky, and wait for God to reveal himself to us, to get the, the goosebumps and the shivers and the tingles, and then we know that, that God has shown up, that God has touched us, God is with us, or something like that. And it's completely backwards from what we actually see in the Bible. If we want to know God, don't get yourself alone in a room somewhere. Get yourself with some people somewhere and have a conversation with them. You don't need to have a Bible study necessarily. Have a real-life conversation with them. I recently interviewed Kathy Escobar. She's a pastor of the Refuge down in Denver. Uh, I interviewed her for my Theology.fm podcast. It's going to be coming out maybe next week or the week after, so you can make sure you subscribe and get it. Really, one of the greatest. Uh, she just had amazing insights. I, I love her heart and her passion to help people uh, and, and just some of the things she said. Anyway, she talked about this thing about how you know the church often tells people they can find God by going to, into a room and reading the Bible and praying and so on. She said most people, most people, cannot and do not actually connect with God that way. Uh, Most people want a God that we can see, that we can hear, and we can touch. And she said, and I agree, that God knows that. In fact, God made us that way. And so that is why he gave us each other. In each other, through relationships with each other, we hear, see, and touch God. Again, I'm not saying that other people or that you and I are gods, but since we are the image of God on earth, his representatives, his statues, in a sense, living, breathing statues of God, then when 
you know, we're, we're his hands, his feet, and his mouth. And when we interact with others and when they interact with, uh, with us, we are being God, being the representatives of God to one another. And we can learn about God through them and they can learn about God through us. And once we recognize this, it, look, we can see that hugging a person in pain shows them, shows them more of God than quoting a Bible verse to them or, or telling them that God loves them. You know, God does love them. And God wants to show them that he loves them through you loving them. God wants to show you he loves you through other people loving you. So, relationships. Critically important to know God. Uh, fifth and finally, and I'll close out with this. People often wonder how they can know God. And I know this is going to sound controversial, but I, I think that since humans are made in the image of God, I believe that to some degree, we can know God by looking at what he has written in our hearts. Uh, I know it maybe sounds dangerous. You might say, what? You're telling people to look into their hearts to know God? Well, uh you know, that, that's making God in our own image. Well, uh, again, if we were made in God's image, if, if we look into our hearts at what he has written there to, to see what God is like, are we really going to be that far off the mark for what God is like? Yeah, of course, sin, and okay, just, I know there's going to be distortions, of course, of course, of course. But, <laughs> look, listen to the way some people portray God when they're looking only to Scripture. You know, again, talk about distortions and tw- these twisted, monstrous interpretations, descriptions of God that sometimes come from our, from our pastors in our pulpits. And look, uh, uh, let, me, let me try to explain this a different way. I, I'm out of words on this. Um, I often have conversations with people, and, and, and they don't believe God exists, or like, if there is a God, I want nothing to do with him. And when I ask them, I talk about them, and I say, why? Why? You know, what has happened in your life? And usually it's, you know, God let them down, or God let a loved one die, or God, you know, didn't do something for them that he, they were certain he would, or maybe he did do something to them that they thought he never would do, or they got, you know, child dies, they got sick, or, or, or you know, they, they heard a pastor say that God hates Muslims, or God hates gays, or or God hates those people, or, or maybe they just read the Old Testament, some of these violent portions about, you know, genocide and, and you know, let none live, you know, and, and or maybe maybe how, if, if God was up there and he was all powerful and he was loving, then how come so many bad things happen in the world, rape and murder and the Holocaust and child slavery and all that horrible stuff? And, and you know, again, the conversation is different with every person. And uh, but usually they state something along those lines for why they don't believe in God anymore. If God really does exist, they want nothing to do with him. And so usually when I have, conver- not usually, often sometimes when I have conversations with people, if I feel like the conversation is leading in this direction, I will ask them, okay, I'll say, fine, let's imagine for a second that you get to invent God. Forget all that stuff that you've been told about God, or forget all that stuff you've read in the Bible. Forget the stuff your pastor said. Forget the stuff you learned in Sunday school. It's all gone. You get to invent God. What would this God be like? What, what would he do? What would he be like? And then I let them describe the God they would invent. And you know what I've found? I have found that quite often, 
The God that people invent out of the longings of their hearts very often looks an awful lot like Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, every once in a while you get the guys, oh, I want God to give me a billion dollars. Well, okay, that's not Jesus. In general, though, minus some of the distractions and the distortions and things that inevitably come along, even with all of us who, you know, we only learn about God from Scripture. Do you really? Anyway, in general, the people who, you know, invent God at my invitation on this, they, they want a God who always loves, who always forgives, and is always there for them in their troubles and their trials. And, and sort of like what Kathy said, the God that they can touch and see and hear and feel. That sounds an awful lot like Jesus, doesn't it? I know, I know it's sort of a challenging idea, and I'm, I, I'm not encouraging you to toss out Scripture. I mean, we're, we're discussing Scripture, for goodness sake, right here. I, I love Scripture, love studying Scripture, learning about God from Scripture. I just think that sometimes, as the, since we are the images of God on earth, sometimes it can be helpful to look at what God has written in our hearts about himself. And when we do that, sometimes, very often, we will see that what he has written there in our hearts about himself looks very much like Jesus Christ in the Gospels. If you want to see what I mean, by the way, I wrote a blog post on this a while back. You can go see the comments. I invited people to invent God, and lots and lots of people left comments, and you can see what type of God they invented. And again, many of them look, these descriptions look very much like Jesus Christ. You go to redeeminggod.com slash invent God, and you can you can see what I'm talking about. Uh, anyway, where did those people get a Jesus-looking ideas about God? I, now, I believe they get them from a variety of sources. I mean, the, the, the indwelling, you know, the Holy Spirit, work in the world, all sorts of things. One of the things, though, is the fact that they are created in the image of God. We are made to be like God, and when we imagine what he would be like, we tend to describe the God who really exists. We tend to describe a God that is revealed in Jesus Christ. Not perfectly, of course, but much better than some of the violent and bloodthirsty portrayals of God I have heard about from pastors and authors who are supposedly drawing their portraits of God from Scripture. Look, I, I could talk about why they see a violent God in Scripture. That's a, a huge topic for another time. Uh, some of it we'll get into as we work our way through Genesis. Some of it's in that book, The Atonement of God, that's coming out. I I'm out of time, though, way out of time. So I'm going to close out this episode. Uh, we'll be picking up next week when we look at Genesis 2, starting in verse 8. I hope to get through verse 17, but we'll see. I know I've covered a lot of topics today. If your head is spinning a bit, you might want to listen to it again. Also, uh, really, go to the show notes. Uh, they're at redeeminggod.com slash Genesis 2-7. And there's lots of links there for previous episode, other books, some blog posts I mentioned in this episode. Um, you can visit the show notes and, and visit those links. Uh, leave a comment or question about this episode if you have, have it about something I've said. Go read that Invent God post. The link, link will be there as well. One thing that will really help you understand some of what I talked about in this episode again is that book, The Atonement of God. It's, it's been heavy on my heart and mind these last couple of weeks, months, years, even as I've been, last couple of weeks especially, as I've been editing and typesetting and proofreading that thing to get it out there, preparing the cover and all that. 
So uh, a lot of those themes have come out in this podcast episode. But if you want to learn more about it, I really do recommend you get that book here in a couple of weeks when it comes out. I'll let you know more uh, on this podcast episode, on this podcast, the One Verse podcast. But also, if you haven't subscribed yet, go to redeeminggod.com slash subscribe. I send out notifications, uh, updates about the book to them first. Uh, they were the first ones to hear about this coming book. And um, they'll be the first ones to hear about it when it is published as well. So if you haven't subscribed, do that uh, today. RedeeminGod.com slash subscribe. Thank you so much for listening to this One Verse podcast. And we'll see you next week when we continue our study of Genesis chapter 2. 